This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How old are your kids now, Jonathan? Uh, my son turned 18. Okay. Uh, actually, while we were at Mount Athos, which was really cool. Oh, wow. Uh, and then oh, he, daughter, they were with you? No, my son was with me at Mount Athos. My daughter obviously can't go to Mount Athos. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Basic sexism there. You can't, That's... women aren't allowed at on Mount Athos for a thousand, it's been a thousand years. Wow. So, wow. Huh. One of the oldest constitutions in the world, probably the, probably the only older, oldest one like in the West is the Vatican. And so... So there you go. How how could you do that? A thousand years, no women, just men for a thousand years. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so my so my daughter's fifteen, and then my youngest daughter's twelve. So, okay. All right. What's on that mountain or island? Monks. Just dudes. a lot of monks. All right. It's a it's a it's a, it's a peninsula uh, on in Greece that has about sixty. Well, 20 official monasteries, but about 60 monasteries, like with all these little monasteries. So there's about 2,000 monks there now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like, it's the center of Orthodox monasticism, really. Okay. What? And it's a, it's like a magical mountain with like all these, these trails and, and fortified monasteries, you know, dotted across. So it's, it's a astounding place. What do they um, spend their energy or their attention on? Is it strictly prayer? Prayer, the whole yeah. monk thing. You know? yeah. That's but why they they have, I mean, there's they, no women there. That would be a major distraction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they they mostly pray. So when we're there, we spend at least six hours a day in church. Uh, and so so they're they start at three in the morning, and then there's a night service, and then morning and everything. So it's a, it's a but they also have gardens and they're all kind of self-sustaining um you know and they they they're they also have some of the oldest books in the world they have libraries treasuries they it's an amazing it's it's a center for research too because they have all these old documents yeah well and the yeah, music a, music life do they yeah they i mean they they definitely have all these they're there's a few traditions of chanting that are there. There's some, there's one tradition that's actually quite unique to one of the monasteries. And so it's all this Byzantine chanting. Hmm. Yeah. So, what, a, what, a, what, how long were you there? Just for a week, like seven days. Yeah. Wow. That must've been a tremendous experience. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, it was really, it was really amazing and helpful for, to kind of come back and refocus. Cause I was kind of losing it there at the end, just before leaving, I was, it, like I wasn't doing super well because I mean Benjamin you don't know but I got all these problems my website was like falling apart and you know we did this crowdfunding last year and the books some of the books had not shipped yet in Europe because we got refused tax problems and all these issues like it was just these not ongoing problems that just wouldn't go away um so but now it's weird because I I kind of let go of it while I was there and then when I got back it's all got solved so now I have a new website which is awesome and uh and the books are in people's hands. So, you know, wow. Glory to God. So you guys are having something 
coming up here, right? Or to their hands. Yeah, you're going to come? I wish. I, I I have so many other commitments this spring. Everybody's doing something this spring. I'm like, can't you guys just do it in July? Because COVID's over and it's like everybody's just wanting to do everything all at once. Yeah. So. Yeah. so I'll be in Ireland for the Genspect conference. and When is this? That's at the end of April. Okay. What is that? It is a... So there are these organizations, professional organizations, uh, WPATH and EPATH, which are the Professional Association of Transgender Health. And they're heavily ideological, as you might um, imagine. And Genspect is trying to do a a broader lens on the trans issue and trans healthcare and detrans issue. And they're having it at the same time as the EPATH. So you can have, you can see that there's the ideologically captured and then a more discursive, uh, conversational based, uh, mm. conference at the same time. Mm. There. Are you going to follow the tradition of, of, of YouTubers? Um, Transitioning Benjamin? Is that, oh. is that, is that going to be a big reveal? <laughs> Should I? Oh my no. <laughs> Why not? My, my, my plain advice to you is no. No. Yeah, I like after. If, it's always a good, if you're running out of attention, it's always a good thing to do. It's a good you know, boost. It's sure. good boost. I just, I, I love women too much to become one. So it's not quite want to be one. It's just like. There's just some threshold of, of my adoration that I just can't, I can't leave. Yeah. The problem is that you could love women so much if you also want to see one in the mirror. That's the, that's the weird thing about mm -hmm. some of the, it's like, it's a auto eroticism to yeah. some of it. It's heavily, it's heavily uh, psychological. There's so many different facets to it. The conversation just keeps on going and trying to help these young men and young women to, uh, to navigate this, um, it's just such a fad. They just get wrapped up in these crazy ideas and then they start popping hormones. Yep. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, listening to Peterson talk about it, it just sounds like um, gender dysphoria is the new bulimia. Um, you know, just, it's just such a frightening thing. Yeah. Well, like my daughter is 12 and uh, all her friends except or maybe two or three, I have one, some, one of the letters is one of the letters. It's like, it's a, it's an 80, 90%. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's not 10, it's not 10%. It's not 20%. It's 80 to 90%. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it. I mean, that's so ridiculous that I don't see how anyone even like that's reasonable in the, in the movement could think that that's a, that's a normal outcome. What, what does your daughter think? What's her take on it? I mean, she doesn't know. She does. She just, for, it's just normal for her. Huh. And it's just, that's just how it is. Yeah. But it's also, it's ridiculous. Cause it's like, you know, you're, you're 11 and you're bisexual. So no, you're not bisexual. You're 11. Because you're just, you don't, you never kissed anybody. You're not, you're <laughs> nothing. You're like, just, just take it easy. It's like, that's, <laughs> anyways. Here's Wokel if Wokel shows up. Yeah, Wokel, he's turn the camera. I'm here. Oh, you are. Right, I'm here. Okay. You need a camera. Yeah. I'm here. I'll get the camera in just a second. Give me just a second. He likes to fiddle. So what, what's coming up with you guys, uh, your conference? So there's a conference uh, in Chino, California with John Rivecki and Paul and uh, John Van Donk, which, you, which you, you probably don't know, but mm -hmm. someone who's worked with Paul quite a bit. And so it's finding a spiritual 
a quest for a, quest a, spiritual, for a spiritual home. Quest for a spiritual home. So John really wanted the quest word. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good word. So, yeah, it's good. It's a good word. It's always great. These these are always awesome. Like the last, the one we did in Thunder Bay was just was really wonderful. Just because the quality of people that come to these things yeah. is so high, that it really is. It makes it great. Yeah. What, what's I like that word quest. Good word. <laughs> so we will we will be we will be talking and um, we will have the the conference again. Will be kicked off with paintball for Jesus. Um, Grim Grizz wanted to be on a cross in a jock strap and have all of us shooting at him with paintballs. Oh. But apparently the paintball venue uh, didn't really find that under, you know, in terms of its uh, its liabilities. Yeah. So the, <laughs> Grim Grizz in a jock strap on a cross will likely not be appearing. Yeah, that's good. I probably wouldn't show up for that. Just to <laughs> warn you, Paul. I even, the, even the name Paintball for Jesus is I know causes deep hesitation in me. But you know, I'm, I'll play along. But if there's some act of of desacralization involved, yeah. like you, I'll yeah. just I'll just skip it. Why don't I call yeah. it Apostolic Paintball? Isn't that a little bit safer? Apostolic Paintball. <laughs> Well, he Grim Grizz kind of think. I mean, churches forever. You know this, Benjamin. Have had you know these softball leagues and you know all these sports leagues, and yeah. he just he thinks that for for Grizz and his own story, he just sees the yeah. The but he's also like that. he's a bit of a he's a bit of a he plays the role a bit of a kind of a holy clown. Like that's his that's yeah. the role he's kind of taken yes. yeah. for himself. A kind of kind of holy fool kind of character. Yeah. Is this mostly men's uh, men showing up to your activities? No, pretty even says right? a lot of women have a lot of women got in first in terms of okay. registration. So, but it was like a third women, I would think at the right. I think that's what Catherine Bay, said. Yeah, so. I think it'll it'll probably be close to half in this one. Yeah, I think so. So, is it going? Are you guys yeah. going to do like a spinoff, like dating kind of? match matchmaking kind of thing i have one i have one like symbolic world marriage like we have (laughs) one couple that met through symbolic world stuff and they're married now yeah we've got three and some babies that's cool and babies wow so there you go that's awesome so that's it's it's happening um but it's still there's still a lot of men in the space as, as jonathan said but i think that's just a transitional phase i think the women will i think the women will come and what, so. what are the men seeking on these quests for home women right i mean that's right in the name <laughs> oh i wish <laughs> they're seeking life yeah that's i mean i think just men and the young guys are are so alienated uh and and just kind of you know it's in some ways it's the opposite of myself and my parents let's say in the sense that you know you know my parents they they grew up in the strict the kind of strict traditional world and they fought the hippies they fought to have access to to sex and drugs and rock and roll and now we kind of grew up half 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 in that world but the young people it's like they you know it's like they're just drowning in porn and video games so they don't have to fight for any of it it's just like what what am i doing you know it's late so antiquity looking, all over again. Yeah, so they're looking for something solid to stand on. Okay. You know? And what, uh, Robin, uh, Robin Fox wrote a really interesting book on sort of the first half of Augustine's life, 
and in in late antiquity um this this fad of virginity really took hold and you know wealthy families were an absolute terror of their daughters joining convents and their sons joining monasteries because suddenly all of these marriages arranged since you know since their were childhood born. were being torn asunder because people just wanted out of the sexual marketplace as it were huh. and um that's coming around again it appears was this early christian monasteries and convents or something else yeah late antiquity so third fourth fifth century okay i mean basically when it's when after the conversion of of constantine and the you know the the end of the persecution you know a lot of in, obviously, you know, when persecution ended and then people flooded back into the churches, a lot of people that had been marginally Christian or had, you know, denounced their Christianity or just kind of stayed in the in the edges, all of a sudden it's like whoosh, this flood. So so then the hardcore people needed a new way to to show that they were hardcore. You huh. know? And then the monasteries became became that for them. Okay. They're the elites. Yeah. There's so. a point to be made. There's a point to be made about the. <laughs> just the, running in from wherever he is. He's making macaroni, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just picture him point. throwing on clothes and, you know, feeding children and wait, wait, wait. <laughs> there Sorry, there go is for it. a point to be made about the fact that the dramatic categories of the libertine liberal left um, get their kind of paradigm from this idea that that Elvis shaking his hips was like this transgressive thing. And because that that transgressive paradigm of liberty is for them what they seek, they're always finding a new boundary to try and recreate that moment. Yeah. And so they're yeah, the, always the, chasing that. The Elvis movie, that Elvis movie that came out recently, which was pretty well made that you could just see that's exactly what they were playing into. It was it was like, here is this this like deep transgression, but it's not just a transgression, right? It's also that the idea that that transgression is a portal to the reality, you know, and any type of formality or rules are a form of, of hypocrisy and, you know, and, and superficial existence. So, so it's a, it's such a deep mythology that, you know, it takes a lot to shake people out of it. It takes, I mean, it does, it takes in some ways someone who's drowning and, like I said, drowning in porns and video game to, to be able to think like, wait, what this is, what am I transgressing? Like, what? There's nothing left. So, so it's a uh, yeah. Huh. How does how does one when when I think about the political tides and uh, you know I'm, I'm investigating like dissident right uh, or reactionary right thought and uh, you know and they're basically trying to critique the liberal order or critique it's beyond critiquing wokeness because they're like no wokeness is just a outgrowth of liberalism but i'm wondering yeah. like when you start to create new structures like uh what do you do with the rebellious instinct what do you do with ambition what how do you capture that stuff so i'm, I'm wondering with what you guys are doing with your meetups and and the in live thing like where are you seeing the attraction to this other than just t fleeing porn and video games like is there like a positive no, I think it is positive or... in the sense that it's it's affirming important things like it's re recalibrating your attention towards something better uh, and then kind of rebuilding yourself out of that attention. At least that's what I see with the guys that go to church. So in my church, we had a massive wave during COVID after COVID of young guys that came to church 
Um, and there, it's not just that they're fleeing their, their thing. They started a work co-op. They do morning prayers together and then they work together and they're, they're trying to like rebuild each other's lives. They help each other financially. They're trying to kind yeah. of rebuild something that is something like a community. So it's not just fleeing degeneracy. Like there's a really a sense of building. At least that's what I see. I think that part of the reason is uh, in, Oh, uh, I have the book here. Searle. You love your Searle. Uh, oh, you have no idea. This book. I'm not sure if you can hardly Elvis or Andrew Tate here, but anyway, <laughs> go on. Both. Uh, the Campus War. He talks about the dramatic categories. And one of the things that he says is that there is, for the liberal professor, there's a set of dramatic categories which are, are, are invoked and are, are at work. <clears throat> and what he talks about is how the moment the student says, I want my liberty. I want my blah, 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 whatever it is. And the administration says, no, they're immediately trapped in these sort of, of dramatic categories of, of what was going on when the students really did have the moral high ground in cases against racism and cases against Jim Crow. But as soon as that, that drama starts, those categories are now re-inhabited. They're re-embodied by everyone involved. And so those dramatic categories in a very real way kind of determine how all of that's going to end up working out. And so what always happens is the administration, the moment the battle starts, the moment the students say, hey, we want X, Y, and Z, the students are, are, are immediately cast in the role of the freedom-loving, rebellious, idealist, and the... Uh, administration is the role of the crass self-interested careerist bureaucrat and there's a and he says this is part of what determines the problem because as soon as that happens your liberal professor who's acting on principle is going to side with whom if he reads that event through the dramatic categories that are already in play a very very similar thing is happening now the only dramatic categories that we have for identity formation is the is the dramatic category of rebelling yeah. that's how you get away from your parents yeah. there's no dramatic category for so the dramatic category that i had was was not i'm rebelling against my parents to separate it's I'm a plant in a greenhouse. I've outgrown my greenhouse. I need to be planted out in the world. Yeah. But that's not a dramatic category, which most people have access to. And so the dramatic category they default to is rebelling against their parents or rebelling against authority. Um, and, and we've had that in the White House from both Trump and Biden, but they're doing it on. I mean, both sides are now doing the exact same game. Could you, yeah, could both you uh, sides are try, uh, both sides. do a little bit more on that? What do you see, Paul? Well, the, so the liberal professor, the liberal professor watches the dynamics and wants to basically wants to be on the winning side. And so you have Trump, who is this strange president that tweets as if he's not president or not in charge of, you know, then you construct this other there's a deep state or there's there's the machine or there's something over there that's really controlling. It's always talking against the man, even when you are the man. OK, yeah. Then, Trump was the underdog outsider that came to take, you know, from the, the, from the jocks that are already in power. Like he's the, okay. he's this outsider, he's the rumbler, he's coming in and, you know, it, it was, it, I mean, it is this, it is the narrative. It's the U S narrative. It's like mighty ducks or whatever. It's like, it's, a, it's yeah. every story. It's 80% of this American movies are, have that right. karate kid story in it. 
Yeah, it's it's every it's always the underdog against the illegitimate authority. Right. And that's why Searle talks about the dramatic categories. He says as soon as the students pick a topic, as soon as that happens, the dramatic categories are set and the die is cast in terms of how it's going to be go- going. And he says, look, um, there's, an, there's an added wrinkle in terms of the campus because the administration is somewhat set out from the faculty. He says if you, if you put the faculty in charge of these universities entirely where every vote was a vote of the faculty, all of a sudden the faculty could not ignore the long-term political um, uh, uh, ramifications of the, of, of the stances that they take. Yeah. And I mean, Searle was a part of the free speech movement at Berkeley. He was the first professor to join. So what he's talking about is how these things have been. And we'll get to this later about what's happened in this is that once you say that the students are right and there's just vulgar crass bureaucrats running the administration, that 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 view of the administration of the university helps with the narrative that the university is merely a tool to achieve certain political ends. And all of a sudden, the goal then becomes to say, well, if it's a tool for achieving political ends, those ends should be mine, not yours. I therefore I, the student, demand curricular control. The administration says no. And now we're acting out that drama again where I, as the student, am standing up for justice and you as the authority are holding me back and holding me down, even though what's happening? Like, if if the professors are just holding you down, why are you attending the university? Who's teaching whom? If the students already know anything, why aren't they the professors? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, so there's this there's this dilemma that's going on that needs to be addressed in terms of the dramatic categories. But it's so profound, it's so deep. I mean, it is it is the revolutionary you know trope itself. Yeah. It's 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 a very very profound story. It's the Enlightenment trope itself. So, I don't. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how to get out of it easily. Let's say. That is the that is the the cost uh, of getting out of it is is quite radical. In some ways, it it means, you know, it has to be. It, I think that's why we push for self transformation first. Like you have to be able to realize that own story in your own in your life first. You have to be able to change the the root of your attention, the root of what you think is the highest first, or else, or else you end up repeating it. You'll end up repeating it no matter what, because, you know, like Paul mentioned, 
this is this this the same story that is behind the hippies is behind the libertarian southerner is behind the the it, it's all the same it's all the same story it's just you cast the others as the as the illegitimate authority or whatever and then you place yourself in the role of the rebel um you know and then it it just whoever is able to convince the most people that they're the you know and it, but it's interesting now because you do see at some point like the the hippie story played so played so hard that it's difficult when a, the the people in power Matt they they are basically the ones that had that story and now how do they hold power kind of make themselves rebels and authoritarian at the same time yeah. uh, but you can see versions of it like there there are different people who try to who try to play that uh, and to cast the others. I mean, Clinton tried to cast the the people as deplorables, right? Make them almost kind of nothing in order to so they don't look like rebels that are trying to take back power. Huh. But but this this story is so inherent in Christianity because it's it's built into the entire Jesus narrative. I mean, Jackson Brown, you know, the rebel, you know, he he sings about Jesus as the rebel king, and and obviously you've got this. Jesus is the true king, comes into Jerusalem. I mean, this is, I mean, for the Orthodox, you just had Palm Sunday. You're heading towards Pasqua. You know, this this is the entire narrative where the hidden king is crucified. And, you know, the sun refuses to shine, the earthquake, the graves are open. And, you know, there's the resolution of the story obviously doesn't come until the 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 new Jerusalem yeah. and the new but heavens. The, and the difference new earth. is that Christ never rebels against the authority, not not once. So this book here, "The Rebel Cell" by Andrew Potter and Joseph Heath, yeah. talks about this. Um, and what their theory basically is is that the counterculture was a critique of mass society. And that narrative that the society is holding me down, that it's and they trace it right back to Marcuse, to the kind of neo-Marxist Frankfurt school, influential ideas from Freud and Marx are all picked up by counterculture rebels. That movement all the way through, that's that's all the way up to like, do you guys remember Naomi Klein and No Logo? You guys remember that? I remember them. All of that. Um the riots in 1999, the battle for Seattle, the World Trade Organization protests, mm. all of that is coming from that counterculture narrative that, you know, the man sends the fuzz around to bust your stash. That's the Beatles saying, look, man, you got to free your mind. Right. It's it's that's the goal. Right. That countercultural mindset. But that countercultural mindset has almost vacated our culture entirely in terms of and has been replaced by wokeness. But really, one is an extension of the other because it's really just the postmodernification of it. And so what ends up happening is for this narrative here, for the rebel cell, for the countercultural rebels, the idea was that whether it was punks in the 80s or whether it was skaters or whether it was the, the, the drug people with Timothy Leary, whichever group it was, pick whichever one you want. All of those people were kind of doing something interesting, the same thing, which is something interesting, which is to say, look, Everyone has been brainwashed by the system, man. And they're all walking around like sheep, man. And we need to wake them up. And what Guy Debord, and we talked about this bit a couple of years ago, Guy Debord from the Situationist International said, look, the smallest of 
of symbols and the smallest of acts is enough to to shake somebody and wake them up and let them know, oh, it doesn't need to be this way. You have to have to pluck them out of that mindset because they're the whole social milieu is making them accept all of this. And there's a, a postmodern-ish kind of turn in there. And so all of the culture jamming that was being done. So you think of Adbusters, that's Kale. Yeah, I was looking I was looking for that name, Adbusters. Yeah, you guys yeah, remember that magazine? Fall. It was yeah, but yeah, it's, it's all so cynical. Yeah. Like it would it would be funny yeah. every once in a while, but it just like it just perverts into right. this there's no that's right. There's no message in this thing other than just subversion. That's right, because they're endlessly subverting the system because they built okay. So that view is that we're always rebelling against mass society, right? Society is always the problem. And eventually Potter and Heath say, look, man, we've been rebelling against society for 60 years. And now we're all rebelling against society. We are the society that we are rebelling against. Right. Mm -hmm. And where has this rebellion got us? But there was a stroke of genius by the counterculturists that, that, allowed them to continue and that was that well it's not that it's not real subversion because they've co-opted our subversion we've been co-opted by the system the bands that we use to rebel have sold out to yeah. the man yeah and so all of a sudden you 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 rebel your way up and then when you get to a measure of success as soon as you get there now you've sold out that's why the grateful dead like dead and company john mayer's band i love john mayer i have one of his guitars it's sitting right there but dead and company sponsored by visa Right. This, yeah. this is they have yeah. American Express is their advertiser. Now you can yeah. buy your weed with a visa. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, they would say, look, they're they've co-opted our subversion, man. Okay, so right? what, because, what do you Woko, what do you think? Because what something happened in 2016, which really did happen, that is that the the 4chan anon culture the froggies, you know, appeared as the ultimate like subversive culture right. i mean it, it was subversive it was crass it was it was it was doing all the things that robert crumb was doing in the 60s but like times 10 in terms of That's breaking right. all the taboos of in, in terms of doing all that and so they appear and then then they they become kind of like the trump supporters they turned on him at some point but at the beginning they were like the ones trying to kind of meme him into office yeah and then we, he was... we end up with the situation with covid which is this with the weird thing <laughs> now the people that are against the system, they're not they're not rebels like the hippies. They're not they're just they're just local. What do they call it? Uh, terrorists, like uh, internal terrorists or whatever term. Insurgents, they use now. yeah. In, yeah, insurgents or or uh, mm -hmm. like home terrorism, domestic or whatever terror they, extremists, domestic terrorism. Yeah. That's the yeah. term they domestic use. Extremism. And so yeah. it's a fascinating turn of events that we've seen just happen in the past. Yeah. You know, six, well, six and years. and coeval with that is what you guys are doing too by there, there's also a resurgence or reinterest in faith and and christianity uh facilitated by jordan peterson's translation of jung and then updating of uh christianity to to a postmodern kind of uh discursive he, he he opened up that box again and now there's a lot more men who are rebelling in a sense against that rebellion women too rebelling is the sense of the rebellion and starting to play around with ideas of being trad or ideas of being pagan or ideas of being Christian again in, in concert 
with the 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 pepes and the gamer word using uh shitlords right? and edgelords right mm-hmm. so there is there is this uh and that's where the energy is for me and it is a subversive energy i'm not going to say that it's the rebellion subversive isn't. submission though i mean jonathan's right about jesus jesus isn't a rebel like che Guevara or any of anybody else on a t-shirt you know jesus jesus disciples say things like slaves submit to your masters as to the lord and we hear that and say how how is that rebellion that's uncle tomism so there's a sense in which a couple of things have happened and one of them is that there is this the narrative is kind of focal negative but it's kind of not in exactly the following way the hippies and <clears throat> the postmodern social justice woke people are rebelling in the name of autonomy, something like Carl Truman's expressive individualism. The political right is rebelling against expressive individualism. Both of them are trying to claim that the other side is in charge. What's actually happened is that in terms of the left the expressive individualists own the culture. And until recently, I would say until 2016, the conservatives were generally more likely to be in charge of the institutions Mm -hmm. that has changed. And it is now the case that uh, through DEI and the corporate that the woke are now in charge of almost everything in the culture, but the woke define themselves as being out of power. So in the sense, so it's, in the same way that Caitlyn Jenner is a woman, the woke are out of power. They identify as being out of power. <laughs> okay? Yeah. That's self-identification no, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to figure right? this out because I always, see the problem that's they, there and I'm trying to see how they, they can always, maintain the story. They always see themselves as being out of power. That's how they think of themselves. And so even when they're operating, they would say, yes, I'm operating, but I was raised in a culture of socialization, which requires a deeper deconstruction and following Freire. If I ever stop deconstructing, I become the status quo. So it's a bias against freezing, a bias against stopping. Always the, the, there's always a taboo that is, is the line. And it's that line. That's why leftism, people try to think of leftism. They say, well, it's an unstoppable force. It's leftism is a horizon. It's, a, it's always going after a horizon. And it never stops because it can never get to the horizon. And so for them, um, th- they are always, and in every case, for the oppressed and will find any, any instance because of their idea, idea that everything is systemic and the external locus of control, any instance of oppression is proof positive that the system itself is corrupt. And if I'm in a system that is itself it's corrupt, I can rebel against that even though I'm the president. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. never the person in charge because the locus of control is always external to me. The most I could ever be is even, and I could never get there. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. And then the conservatives are rebelling against that. So when the conservatives started picking up that said, hey, we're the new counterculture, I was like, why are we adopting that narrative? Is there any other narrative? Because when we adopt that narrative, as soon as we come into power, we lose the narrative on which we wrote in on. 
it undercuts us out from under us. So what we need to do is we need to have a narrative that doesn't rely on us being out of power. It's very tempting. In a certain sense, we're the Travis Kelsey of of politics right now because Travis Kelsey said at the Super Bowl, not a one of you thought we were going to win. Not a one of you. Dude, you were the second favorite team entering into the season. Half the forecasters picked you to win the Super Bowl. Not a one of you picked us. No, almost everyone picked you. You were the favorite. You were the betting odds, Travis. But it's like we adopt this as like a sort of like us against the world mentality. And I think conservatives don't want to us against the world. I don't think that's good. I think we have to adopt a vision of what's good. See, we have to stop aiming for just justice because justice says, okay, now everyone has the same. Okay, now what? What are we going to do? We have to adopt something which is better. We have to have something to aim at. We have to have a target. Right now, we don't have a target. We have Benjamin, this goes to what you're saying that. And, and what you what you were talking about with Arl in terms of there needs to be a center. And that's what Peugeot says all the time. What we've got are, are right now parasites in conflict. Huh. And and those parasites, you know, want their host to arise, but then they want to supplant the host. And you have this perpetual revolution. And but you, you need something foundational. The difficulty that we have is the old foundations, Const- Constantinople. Rome, here in the New World, um, you know, Protestantism sort of had a community of rebels as its foundation, and we're sort of reaching the realization. Yeah, of because that. it's there in the Puritan. It's already there because we talk about Frankfurt School or whatever, but it's there in the, in in Anabaptism and in Puritanism. Not Anabaptists, at least they didn't. Mo- most of them, especially after the first like crazy wave, but. After the first crazy wave, most of them don't want to, like, take down society, right? They just want to be left alone and be against the world. But in the Puritan spirit, there is a little bit of that, right? It's like, we're going to make our own. We're going we're gonna to take over the system. Uh, so that's true. It seems to be part of the American story very deeply in a, in a very deep way that I don't know how to, how to get out of. Ex- except that I no. think that with the, the classical, there is a classical let's say part of American founding, like a, a sense of being connected to, to classical wisdom and to, okay. to class, to, to classical uh, knowledge. Uh, and I think that the idea of truth, goodness, beauty is something that the conservatives, whatever that means, they, they, they can look to and say, this is, this is our aim. Like the transcendentals are our aim and we can argue for them very convincingly, especially now as we kind of watch everything fall apart it's not that hard to say, right? That there is a need for trans- t- transcendent goodness and transcendent beauty. Yeah. Um, at least I don't. It yeah. seems like it's an op- there's an opportunity to do that now. Well, that was so. I'm just gonna keep quoting Searle. He talks about how um, part of what maybe I'll just read it at some point. But he talks about how um, the motivation for the anti logo. I'm just going to have to read this because it's too good. You, you have can, to read, you can it. read it to us. As you, you guys can go do your thing. As you smoke your hookah with your Bruce Springsteen bandana. Wait, wait let, me, let me turn my camera off and clean my room while we're... Uh, <laughs> oh, no. While we're, okay. Hold on. I'll just listen here in the background and talk when <laughs> wait, things happen. But, Paul, I wanted, I wanted to bring up what you've been talking about, about heroism. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. Okay, okay. Go for it. We'll go. 
Read it. If the relation of the Western rationalistic tradition to the traditional ideas of the universities is more or less obvious, the relation between attacks on the Western rationalist tradition and proposals for education reform is much less obvious. It is simply a fact that, in recent history, rejection of the Western rationalistic tradition has gone hand-in-hand hand with the proposals for politically motivated changes in the curriculum. So, what is the connection? I think the relationships are very complex, and I do not know of any simple answer to the question. But underlying all the complexity there is, I believe, a simple structure. Those who want to use the universities, especially the humanities, for leftist political transformation correctly perceive that the Western rationalistic tradition is an obstacle in their path. In spite of their variety, most of the challengers to the traditional conception of education correctly perceive that if they are forced to conduct academic life according to the set of rules determined by constraints of truth, objectivity, clarity, rationality, logic, and the brute existence of the real world, their task is made all the more difficult, perhaps impossible. If you think the purpose of teaching the history of the past is to achieve social and political transformation of the present, then the traditional canons of historical scholarship, the canons of objectivity, evidence, close attention to the facts, and above all truth, can sometimes seem an unnecessary and oppressive regime that stands in the way of achieving more important social objectives. In my experience, the present multiculturalist reformers of higher ed did not come to a, received a revised conception of education through a refutation of the Western rationalistic tradition. Rather, they sought a refutation of the Western rationalistic tradition that would justify a, a revised conception of education they already found appealing. That was written in, in that was in day dayless. So was he arguing for, or was he, he's, he's, his, his value is rationality. So, yeah. So I, I think that that's West where I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong because I think that, that, that one of the things that postmoderns get right is that rationalism is not <clears throat> sufficient for action. Like rationalism is not the, there is a reason there's a, there's a drive for for action which precedes rationalism you know and, yes. and that's why i my my call to the transcendentals is actually not a call to rationalism in the simple sense it's a call right. to to transcendent value and that that transcendent value then informs the rational the rational uh world the the difficulty that i think the difficulty we have is that a lot of the unquote the quote unquote conservatives they're still liberals in the sense that they do really do believe in this rationalistic world and so they just want to can we just turn the clock back you know 15 minutes before this all exploded uh but i think it's we can't we need we need to recapture something that is beyond reason in order to in, in order for reason to to find its its anchor so i'm going to requote Searle again from this right, book okay. which is Mind and society and we're going to touch on exactly that point. All right. Go because for it. his diagnosis of what happens to the universities is exactly correct. All of the stuff about being politically motivated is bang on. Their relativism, bang on. Ontological relativism, bang on. Politically motivated subjectivism, bang on. Yeah. But here's, he puts his finger on the problem and solves it in the wrong direction. Okay. Okay, go for it. Ultimate reality, to speak grandly, is the reality described by chemics and chemistry and yeah. physics. Here we go. Yeah. It is the reality of the world consisting of entities we find it convenient, if not entirely accurate, to call particles that exist in fields of forces. That view itself is not realism, but is the claim that how, within the realist background, the world turned out. Realism is a background presupposition that says there is a way that things are. True. Physics is a discipline that contains theories. 
also true. The theories say this is how things are. Anti-realist and challenging the background supposition challenge not so much the theory, but the status of the theory. Because there's no way that things are independently of us, physics can't be telling us how they are. Physics is just one social construct. So here we're going to go. He's going to get right into it. But somebody will surely say, what about God? If God exists, then surely he is the ultimate reality. Physics and all the rest are dependent on God, dependent not only on it, on their initial creation, but for their continued existence. And in earlier generations, books like this one would have had to contain either an atheistic attack or a theistic defense of natural religion. And so then he talks about Russell and, and Mill, and he says, matters of religion are matters of sexual, like sexual preference. They're not to be discussed in public, and even abstract questions are discussed only by bores. What has happened? I think that most people would suppose there's been a decline in religious faith among the more educated sections of the population in Western Europe and North America. Perhaps that's true, but it seems to me that the religious urge is as strong as ever and takes all sorts of strange forms. I believe that something much more than a decline of religious faith has taken place. For us, the educated members of society, the world has become demystified, or rather, to put the point more precisely, we no longer take the mysteries we see in the world of expressions of supernatural meaning. We no longer think of odd occurrences as cases of God performing speech acts in the language of miracles. The odd occurrences are just odd occurrences. The result of this demystification is that we have gone beyond atheism to a point where the issue no longer matters in the way it did to earlier generations. Yeah, but you're right. But okay. in yeah, in his vision of God, he obviously has a kind of nominalistic idea, right? God is a being and God is this, you know, God is arbitrary in relation to the world. But this is, of course, this is, I mean, this is the issue. And so there's a deep relationship between the proper vision or the, you know, the more ancient vision of God as the absolute, as the source of being in the mystical way and the mysticism of the world that is the world as being, imbued with meaning, imbued with with a kind of brightness, you know. Yep. But without that brightness, there's no physics and chemi chemistry and, and all that stuff. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying relevance, you know, this is what John Verveke has been great at showing us, that relevance precedes, re precedes the identities, these kind of cold identities of, of facts that we describe in science. That's that, right. That, the, the question of relevance precedes that. And so, so, so in some ways, I mean, you know, it's like, I wish Sarah would have been there to, to have this discussion, you know. Um, so here's here's the so, point that he thinks. And this is the this is the this is the bullseye where I think the problem lies. The fact that the world has become demystified to the point that religion no longer matters in the public way that it once did shows not so much that we are all becoming atheists, but that we have moved beyond atheists, atheism to a point where the issues have a different meaning for us. And so what I think Searle has solved the problem in a way which has destroyed meaning. And I yeah. think that the meaning and significant question, I think Searle's diagnostic work on language is fabulous. His diagnostic work on, on the Western rational tr tradition is fabulous. The problem is that his worldview is too restrictionist. And when push comes to shove, he robs the world of significance and meaning. It's 
Telos goes away. Yeah. And so I love Searle because Searle is the antidote to the postmodernist subjectivism, their politically motivated subjectivism and all the way that goes that. But Searle can only ever be a diagnostic tool on that front. He can't actually solve the larger problems of meaning. So we use Searle. Searle is kind of like the way Christians use a law to know that we have sin. We hold up Searle as our standard to know when we have postmodernism and how it's wrong. But the problem is that Searle then restricts himself to that in a way which doesn't allow anything to break out right you can't get outside of that you can't get to an ultimate telos you can't get to an ultimate purpose you can't get to an ultimate significance because you can't even get to morality because there are no oughts all he has is an is and it's a very sparse is particles moving in fields of forces that's all he's got and that's part of his problem so his truth problem is that his his definition of truth insofar as it goes in up uh up against the postmoderns is excellent the problem is it's so restrictive that once he defeats the postmoderns he goes aha back to nihilism now that's and it's right. like back, no, right back to that's right. particles that's right forces. you're just bumping on the rubble of nihilism huh. well that's what, right what, that's his problem what's the alternative then of meaning uh coming from somewhere that's what we're trying to find out well yeah okay that's what i want to look at that's what i want to well, where does the sun? Well, it, it, it was, I mean, it, it's helpful to remember how we got here in that the the turn to empiricism and rationality were come after the attempt, let's say, by Luther to resolve using texts and rationality to to finally have unity. And what happened was Europe then fractures. And so well, then you have unity. How can you define that or describe that? What Luther was groping for? Well, Luther thought that if you applied rationality to this text, and he had a better text thanks to Erasmus. So you have this. Oh, well, we're good. If we can get to better texts and apply rationality to it, then we can, you know, we can stop indulgences and and all of the yeah, evils. Wait, this, people will just automatically know what's what's true. Right. Like they'll just read the text. We'll apply the reason to it, and then we'll just all agree because, you know, it's obvious, right, what the text says right here. You could just see it, you know, and then all the Jews will convert, and everybody will just just agree because it's like we, it, the text is clear, okay. right? Uh, and it didn't happen. It, did, it certainly didn't happen. And the, did and the alternative to that, or what, what preceded <laughs> that then? You, you had an, a central authority. Well, and you had two authorities because you had the Orthodox Church and, and, and the Catholic Church had already split by then. Over, I, I think over definitions of like little small, tiny little words, right, is where they, they start to split. In terms, of the, in terms of the split between Orthodoxy and Catholicism? There yeah, are many it's, reasons. It's, it's amazing. There are a few reasons. Yeah. One is definitely a, a, a question of, of church structure, and the other is a... Uh, it is a theological question, which is a little more a little more obtuse. But the, I mean, the idea is that in people's lives there was a there's a there's something you could call tradition, which I don't want to. It's a it's a dirty word for for contemporaries. Yeah. But what it means is that in some ways you inherit a kind of spirit, you inherit a kind of way of doing things, kind of way of seeing the world, you know. And and it's 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 implicit. It's not it's not something that is completely explicit. Right. Uh, you know, if you if you ask someone, you know, why they're shaking hands with somebody else and, you know, how they do it or whatever, they can't explain it to you. They just inherit something from their parents. And okay. so think of that as this just this this connection between generations, which 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 frames reality for you. Uh, and so there's a, there's a sense of 
Yeah, there's a sense of this implicit, implicit way of participating in the world. And, and the role of the individual in that world is as a receiver. Like you, no, not just as a receiver. It's a it's it's just a it's a fractal system, right? So there's a sense in which the the things exist at different levels. You kind of receive and then you participate yeah. and you 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 enliven, you make things living. You don't just receive them. Well, I'm I'm so trying you, to compare and contrast that to rebelliousness or our inherited pro, pro, protestation. Constantly, we, well, for sure, the, we the don't want fascism. We see fascism around every authoritarian corner, right? We have what, what, a tradition which set, which rejects the tradition. So we, we hand down the great tradition of not handing down traditions. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. It's like a weird right. anti-tradition tradition. Okay. Right. Uh, it's it's like Pente- like I go to a Pentecostal church and they talk about how we don't have a liturgy. And I'm just like, no, you do. You're just yeah. liturgy is just talking about how you don't have one. <laughs> yeah. But there is. There's obviously a liturgy. It's always like it's like one song announcements and then that's whatever, right. like a few three songs. Three fast, three slow, one message. to get ready and one to go. There's your liturgy. <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's a liturgy, dude. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. So, but, but, the, yeah. but Benjamin, what I, what I, I just want to get to, to hammer this point in is yes. that the, the idea, the traditional way of seeing it is that you have this spirit and then you have to, you have to live it. So it's not it's not that you just receive it's that you are embodying something. And so you know you were let's say it could be something smaller, right? It could be let's say the tradition of a of a sports club. I like using those cuz they're they're non-political and people. So you have a culture, there's a culture, there's a team culture, there's a a spirit of that team and then new players can come in and new and old players can go out, but somehow you're able to preserve an embodiment of a of a culture and of a, a way of being in that group. And so think of that now at larger scales in terms of your family, in terms of your village, in terms of your community. And then ultimately, of course, also in terms of the way in which you would live your faith. Uh, yeah. It's 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 this this capacity to kind of embody con- continuity. Yeah. There, I just yeah. to add a little complexity to that. When you talk about sports, at least in America, in modern times, that the bears or the bulls are not separated from the audience. So they, they do have their own culture, but they're also held together by by attention, by belief, um, by yeah. fans or by fanatics. Um, so, so nobody th- controls it. It's not one person that can decide what the bulls are. You know, it's a it's a. To use a term I hate, it's a, it's an emergent property or whatever. Like it's a, it, it's, it's a, a spirit. I, it's a spirit. Yeah. yeah, I like spirit or principality better. Uh, but it, it's something that is beyond any individual's capacity to to control it. That emergence thing. Uh, that's Searle's theory of mind. And the problem that J.P. Moreland points out to him is that you're emergent. Okay, how? It's a it's a name where a theory should be. Because it doesn't answer the question. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's 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 a name for the space where it it was amazing. He said, he said, everybody thinks they know what they mean. It's like the word emergent. You could use magic, and it would be the same. Oh, here, there's emergent properties. Like, okay, you didn't explain anything. Well, what's what's the question? Yeah, emergence is science. What's the question? If it's what's the what what is it trying to? What are we pointing to when we say emergent? What are we trying to? What yeah. breaks forth? Something that yeah brings forth. So, bring forth. Okay. so it's like this. It's so this is the idea of emergence. I have a single molecule of water of H2O. I have a single molecule of H2O. Is it wet? What if I have two or three or four or five or ten? How many of those molecules do I have to have? Eventually I get wetness. Yeah. Unless it's cold, in which case I get ice. But the the 
the behavior of the sum total of the molecules in the lattice structure creates a certain particular kind of viscosity, which results in either ice or liquid. And the hardness of the ice and the liquidity of the water are emergent properties that emerge from the behavior of the lower level phenomenon, namely the H2O molecules. Okay. That's emergence. Sometimes we can explain emergence like in water where we say, look, it's the lattice structure of the individual molecules as they connect to each other and the crystallization of them, which forms ice. That's a good explanation. Sometimes we say, what's consciousness? Well, it emerges. Yeah, and that's it. it. And we just, yes. we just, and Jonathan, you're saying tradition is, tradition is an emergent property. Uh, it's another, no, I mean, that I, we I emerge that, into I, or. No, what I mean is that it's not, it's not, there's nobody controlling it. Like there's no one okay. who can control tradition with, with, at whatever level you want to. There's no to, person with skin on them controlling it. That's right. Yeah. So, the, I mean, obviously, we the, there's a sense in which there are, there are principalities that control it. So you can identify this is now we're falling more in traditional theology, but there's a sense in which, you know, let's say certain characteristics will have a coherence to them that you can see across whatever. A good example is like anger, right? So anger is something that, Obviously, you don't totally control it comes out in you and then you try to control it. But hmm. for some reason, you can recognize anger across different people and it all kind of looks the same. And nobody seems to be telling us what anger is, <laughs> you know. And so so what the traditional thinking will say, well, there's a demon, there's a there's a spirit, okay. a spirit of anger. Yeah. And then that that is a way to represent all the commonalities between certain certain qualities okay so what what do we do yeah. with with western rebelliousness the quality the emergent property of western rebellion yeah it's a luciferian it, it's captured in traditional thinking it's it's luciferian and, right and, it's the idea of the light that right the, the the one who carries the light that's who lucifer is lucifer is the one who carries light or the one who reflects the light that that they think they're the source of light and so they think that they actually have it all and that they can replace their own source. And so the, the whole story of Satan, no matter how you represent it, has that basic pattern to it. It's like, it's, I've got it. I'm going to take. So it's Promethean. It's Prometheus who's like, I'm going I'm to go up the hill. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get what I, I'm being refused this from the, the, the things above me. So I'm going to replace the gods, take from the gods. They're different ways. They're different stories uh, in this. And how is he redeemed? Re how is that? How is the rebellious character redeemed? What's his plot arc? Like, how does he fulfill? Well, Christianity he doesn't end well by his, the, what? that one. It doesn't end in well. Christianity, it doesn't end Lake well of Fire. That one. There, there is an archetypical story here. Yeah. There actually is an archetypical story. Um. So, to... There's going to be two threads here that we're going to have to weave. The first one is uh, in this book, Social Justice and Cooperation by, or Cooperation and Social Justice by Joseph Heath. That's a very recent volume. He talks about in, uh, he does a chapter on immigration and he, he talks about how the liberal is the man who can never take his own side in a fight. <laughs> because... Because they have to be pluralists about everything, and yeah. you have to rationally justify everything. Well, eventually you get down, and how do you rationally justify going against illiberalism? Well, now you're tolerant of intolerance, or well. And so you have these paradoxes, and he says, look, if you view your society as cooperation, what you're really talking about is intergenerational cooperation. That's what you're doing. You're cooperating with your past. 
he's very getting quite suspiciously close to Chesterton's Democracy of the Dead. Right? If you understand that, if you understand Chesterton's idea. Now he doesn't say that. Obviously, he's an atheist. Democracy of is, the Dead would be the accumulated wisdom of our forefathers or common it's law or the something. The idea like that. that that a man's opinion shouldn't matter less just because other people happen to be walking around at a given moment. Right? Just because we happen to be alive at this particular moment doesn't make us more smart or more wise than the voices of the past. And so you give the dead a vote by taking into account their views and ideas. So you already have you already have a degree of respect for tradition. It's that's re-emerging. Yeah. And so what he says is you're cooperating. He says, look, you are in everything, whatever it is you're inheriting, you're getting it from other people. And so he says his, his idea for immigration, he says, the very fact that immigrants are coming here and we're not going there means they want to join our system of cooperation, which implies what? They have to cooperate with us, which requires adopting what? And that's his answer oh, over and against the liberals who can't do their thing I mean, who, who can't take their own side in the fight yeah. with regard to the animating spirit behind a lot of this it's an anti-authoritarian and a suspiciousness of authority because of an overall elevation of reason and merit and the pathologizing of the idea that anybody can legitimately have something or have a right to have something that they didn't get on rationally justified merit and so what that means is there's no room for favor if you push it far enough, well, and if this ever got into everything, you'd have to rationally justify falling in love. Mm -hmm. Well, consent culture, right? yeah, you have to and, say yes before and, if, and after every kiss. Right? Yes, but, well, no, but take it a step further. Not only would you have to rationally justify falling in love, you'd have to rationally justify falling in love with one person over another, yeah. which means you'd have an inequality there, which means you'd have to deconstruct your inequality which means you'd have to deconstruct your preference, right? And so when you take liberalism and you try... The elevation of liberalism from a system of conflict resolution to a lens through which we try to live through the world and create meaning is the problem. Yeah. Liberalism was expanded to be a thing it was never meant to do. Yeah. This is never well, what it was for. This is taking the hammer and saying, it'll be my hammer, it'll yeah. be my fork, it'll be my knife, it'll be my spoon, it's how I'm going to wash myself. This is how I'm going to, like, no, I'm going to drink from my hammer. No, 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 no. Hit nails with it. That's it. The, the tenets of liberalism were never meant to be the tenets of personal ethics behavior. It was never to help to figure out what's meaningful. And so when people say you wanted to throw liberalism, I say, no, I love liberalism. I'm a classical liberal, but I'm classical in that I want to put liberalism back where it belongs. Yeah. It's right now it's expanded to try and people are trying to now cash out the terms of their meaning. And most importantly, the validity of their action and what they find meaningful on liberal grounds, but liberalism doesn't have the resources to cash out what's meaningful or not. And so when you try to justify your meaningful behavior and actions and ethics on terms of liberalism, you're going to have a bit of a tough time. Yeah. And when the postmodernists deconstruct your logos while you're at it, what you're left with is nothing. It's a flat surface and everything has been wiped away. And so well, what part if, of the what if what's left is actually the opposite like one of the things we're seeing and and i think this is something that i i took it, it i only understood in the past five years i would say because I, I i was struggling to understand it it's like it's actually it, what ends up what you end up with is like a satanic hierarchy that is it doesn't end flat it ends with an opposite hierarchy yeah. it ends with it's as if 
It's like the, the tenets of liberalism, they, they don't hold. And so you say, for example, you say, everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. When you look around, like nobody's equal. Like everybody's different. Everybody has different qualities, but everybody has. So you push, you push, you push. And then, then it, because it doesn't hold, you actually have to over stress. So yes. now you don't yes. say men and women are, are, are as strong as each other. You have to say women are stronger than men. Yeah. So it's not, it's and, not that now it's like, it's not that let's say the stranger that comes in is equal to you. No, no, no. The stranger that comes in is better than yeah. you. So what you end up doing is you set up, you don't end up with a flat thing. You right. end up with an upside down thing, like an upside down hierarchy well, where now yeah, like and, we, so you saw Benjamin, you saw, it, it, you saw it in, in the university, right? Yeah. You saw it's like where the exception of the exception, you know, the person that can capture all the oppression points has right to speak is that is like the top of no, divine the authority of, of meaning you, yeah. and you have a king yeah. you just have a disabled trans um indigenous uh immigrant undocumented immigrant king but there he is Heath Heath talks about that actually in a separate essay on on uh the redistribution of social status he says in your attempts to redistribute social status what do you have to do you have to say that person's lower than that person so we're going to fix them but in doing that you reify the problem so instead of of, of the only way to account for that is to go overboard and to pathologize anything that might give someone social status. And he says, part of the problem is in, is in extending equality to every realm rather than what we should be doing is saying, look, there's a large iterated number of games. And also we're going to stop the status from one game from bleeding over into the other. We're going to have an order, right? We're going to have a restricted level of, you can't yeah. go here. You can't like, but who decides? But the problem is when, right. And the only way to build those boundaries is to use power. Yeah. And that is the thing that we have pathologized into oblivion. And so what you end up with is a situation where you have a whole pile of people who are all trying to gain power without looking like they're gaining power. The most, and, and Heath actually lampoons this a little bit because he says the most high status thing you could say is I don't care about status. You don't need to care about status. You've got plenty of it. That's why. It's like a rich man saying, I don't worry about money. Well, of course not. You've got a billion in the bank. Why would you be? So it's like a humble brag in a certain way to say, I don't care about status. And so his point is that he's like, of, of course you don't care about status. That's a very high status thing for you to say. And because you're a university professor and because you have lifetime tenure and because you can't be fired, you could say things like that without any repercussions. Whereas the guy who's barely hanging on, if he says, yeah, I don't care about what my status is, it's like, well, he could get fired and lose his job and not be able to feed his kids. And so we've got this problem where it's exactly what you said, Jonathan. I completely agree. In order to <clears throat> try and, and create that absolute egalitarianism of everything, which was never supposed to be a part of liberalism, but it is a part of this sort of suspicion of power that reaches into, uh, and the idea that, all hierarchies are inherently the result of cynical and tyrannical power grabs. We've created a situation where we have to overcompensate in the other direction to say that, oh, I am so not xenophobic that I actually prefer strangers to myself. Now, that's already being problematized as well. Oh, you're fetishizing them yeah. as a way of making yourself look good in your own will to power. Barbara Applebaum being good, being white. So now you yeah. can't even do that. What you have to do is turn yourself into a little more than an environmental accoutrement that doesn't have any impact in society at all. You just become like a shrub in the back. That's right. 
But it, this is fetishized, you know, in, in storytelling. <laughs> like when I saw the new the new uh, Planet of the Apes, I couldn't believe it. Like I just couldn't believe that story. It's like huh. human beings watching a movie where we where animals are taking over our world and we're cheering. Like we're hmm. cheering our own disappearance, right? It's like the, <laughs> the invading alien is actually the good guy and we're horrible. And thank God that the apes are taking over our world. It's like, how can anybody watch this and not like want to just kill themselves? Yeah. The, uh, if you watch those David Attenborough uh, nature films, like over, over the course of time, he comes, becomes more and more anti-human. And until there's this one series, it was on Netflix or on Disney, where he goes through all these different habitats. And at the end of every episode, here's how human beings are destroying it. And then the last episode is they go to Chernobyl. And it's this utopia for him because all, all they thought that nature was going to be over when, when humanity destroyed it, but no, it just, uh, humanity destroyed itself. And now nature comes back and, and this is, this is how the world should be, you know, all these adaptive yeah. others Oof. ruling over it, me. This it's yeah. Well, I am, I am so, in, see, I care so little about status that I'm willing to wipe out all of humanity and I'm so enlightened. But where, where do that's you? That's why I should be given. That's why I should be given several awards for my work, and you should hire me to make your movies. The opposite direction, though, is authority. Returning to authority. Returning to hard no. power. Right. No, that, that's no. not. So th I don't think that's true. So there are characters. You asked this question before, and we didn't really get to it, which is that how is the Luciferian character uh, redeemed? And I said it doesn't end well for the devil. He ends in fire. But there are examples of luciferian characters in in our storytelling that that actually sh exemplify that for us i think i think robin hood is a great example so what robin hood does is he's in a situation of of kind of upside down uh order you know of a illegitimate situation where the wrong person is king and but the, Robin Hood doesn't want to become king, right? Robin Hood doesn't want to take power. All he wants, and so he becomes a trickster and a thief and an outsider. But all that he's doing is actually there to restore the legitimate king. Well, yeah, but there's so, still a legitimate king. There's still hard the, power. The, yeah, comes back. I mean, if you're I not mean, if you're not you, fighting for the restoration always, of the monarchy, why do you just conceive it as power, right? Yeah. Well, no, I, I because don't, in, in defense of liberalism and Protestants, okay, um, Protestantism, I mean, liberalism, we might think of it this way: it's it can be good medicine, but it's bad food. Okay. Okay. Because it can it can address the tyranny, and your question about redemption is, in fact, the redemptive story of Christianity. Look at the parable of the tenants and the vineyard. The tenants take over the vineyard from the from the far off king, and the king sends messengers and says, you know, hey, it's my vineyard, yeah. and they kill the messengers. Surely they will respect my son, he says in the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, that's setting up to the crucifixion of Christ, who is not respected. But then the the hidden king redeems at least some of the rebels. Peter is saved, Judas is lost. And and that's how this thing continues to lay out. But there's still a king. There's still a return of the king. Yes, yes, there's still a king. There has to there's, be. So where, where, where do we find the king after liberalism? I mean, if, if we're... If okay. We're, if, if, if liberalism isn't serving everything that we need it to, then one thing that it's knocked out of place is authority, right? So how do Kings we return to authority? always emerge. 
Okay. Uh, so I was, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if we're, if we're not, that if, discusses this, if we, if we get wary every time we mention power, we're like, oh, well, we don't want power. Like, no, power's coming. Power's returning. No, you need, that's right. You need power. There definitely is power. There definitely is authority. But that authority has to be the, the idea of the right authority. Yeah. Right, is in the sense legitimate. Legitimate. I know it, it's weird because we we don't think that there is such a thing as legitimacy, but legitimate yes. power is is the one is the power that exists where it is and then lets power and authority exist at the level that proceed that are below it okay and so you can recognize illegitimate authority when it competes with levels that aren't theirs so an authoritarian government is one that tries to tell you what to do in your family tries to like completely control it basically thinks your their, your children belong to them. That's a sign of authoritarianism because it's actually trying to compete with levels of of reality that that don't belong to it. And a legitimate authority ex- exists where it is, and then understands that there are constituents of it that don't that that aren't completely filled with their their authority. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I did. remind me in a second to talk about the Mighty Ducks. Oh, but Mighty Ducks talks about. Yeah, that movie. Searle talks about that exact dynamic in uh, The Campus War, where he says that what ends up happening is that the professors who are liberal are so wanting to elevate reason over and above power that they think that any failure of the administration to get the rebels to recognize the authority of the university is a problem on the part of of the administration, because if the administration can't win the rebels over, they must not have used good enough reason and logic and evidence rather than realizing that the rebels don't care about that. They're after power. Well, yeah, but they're all after right? power now. They're all, they're all rebels. I'm but, saying there's no, there's no legitimate King. Right. We can critique so the, the fact Ducks that we are in. in the rebellious, we, we are rebe- rebels, right? but are we not rebels there's, looking for a King? So there's a there's the justification the legitimate use of power and that comes through something like authority. We're not in the authority of I get to tell you what to do. That the in the sense of authority of he is an authority on the issue of biology or whatever it is. The we, perfect we should movie talk that, about subversive submission though, because okay. you have this strange case sure. in the New Testament where you have Paul of Tarsus in Romans 13 talking about the legitimacy of Roman authority, yeah. who on one hand saves his butt in Jerusalem and will eventually put him to death. And, and that lives in that space. Okay. And I want to touch on the mighty duck because it's the perfect mighty thing ducks. For this. I can't wait to hear about that the mighty duck. The fir- the 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 movie has this older man who runs a skate shop. Named, I believe his name is Hans. There's the hotshot lawyer who gets caught on an alcohol. He's an alcoholic and he has to coach this kid's team. And there's a kid on the team named Charlie. And there's, those are three iterations of kind of, you could think of it, the stages of a man's life. And the lawyer used to be the hotshot, great player, whatever happens. And he has to learn to take on his own responsibility in terms of coaching the hockey team. And in doing that, he has to teach Charlie, who's the guy on his team who becomes the leader of his team, because mm-hmm. the team is terrible. They have no equipment. They're all poor kids. The bad news bears. And, uh, it's yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bad news bears on ice. And, and so they yeah, get a kid yeah. named Adam Banks, who was the hot shot from the team across town, who's all the wealthy kids or whatever. And so now Charlie has to learn to become the leader on a team where he's not the best player. His 
his coach has to learn to become the leader of that guy. And all of it comes down from Hans, who's this wise older man. Okay. That story iterates itself through all three of those movies. But in the third movie, there's this scene where two of the kids, Charlie and his friends say, Hey, let's skip class there. I think in grade 12, we'll go to the amusement park. Yeah. That's what we used to do. And it's the, I want to go back and be a kid again. And so they go to this amusement park and they're sitting around and it's just like, it's kind of sad and pathetic because they're like on these rides that they're too big for and they're eating cotton candy while like kids half their size are running around circles on them. And you could just see it's this, it's this stepping back from that rightful place of authority and from that level of maturity and it's refusing to step into the thing that they could really be. And so one of the things that that movie does is it demonstrates what proper wisdom and authority looks like in the figure of Hans. It shows how a guy like Charlie, who's the young guy will fall into line and submit once the, the hotshot coach gets his act together. The other one follows behind it. So when everyone, when there's that ideal and someone starts following in behind that ideal and expressing it, there's this sort of not emergent, but oh, there's you're this kind say of it. natural inclination. <laughs> this, this in, there's this internal teleological compass which points us in that direction and gives us reason to call underneath and to fall into that authority. And you can see that. And yeah. that's a paradigmatic story that used to exist. The rebel who finds his mentor and then... Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. who's too big for the people around him and then breaks the authority that's withholding him, but then finds the larger authority which can hold his ability and then submits to that. Right. And I think something like that is what we're trying to aim at. That was a movie I watched as a little kid and I was able to find mentors in the various places where I was going in. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, and you know, if you want to look at it out of the crass political frame. So you've got so Biden and Trump. You've got Biden, who is a Roman Catholic, and you've got Trump, who's by no means a church going. <laughs> Trump poses with the Bible. Yeah. And you get these weird moments where on one hand, when he's posing with the Bible, it's like, you're such a fraud. On the other hand, he, when he's posing with the Bible, you almost get the sense of, but there's something at least he's recognizing in this that Biden is struggling with. And it's exactly that dynamic that we, we have a sense, which isn't completely obliterated in us of moments when the world is right. And that's when we have the sense of proper authority that as Jonathan says, understands its place and exercises its authority within its realm. And, and not tyrannically because what that, proper authority does is allow its power to not suppress the use of power, but the flourishing of other proper appropriate powers to actually bring flourishing to the world overall. That's what we have a hunger for. And even though we're deeply compromised, there are moments in stories and music and in our own lives where we see it and we say, ah, but it takes a faith that which is this, this, the faith that when Christ goes to the cross by submitting, he shows all this worldly power. And, and the question is, why on earth would he stay on that cross? Yeah. What, what kind of craziness does, it, does keep him on that cross? And then even in the resurrection, you know, if, 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 if the American government were to put me to death, 
you know, Joe Biden hated me or Donald Trump hated me. And I popped out out of the grave. The White House would be my first stop. And I'd knock on the door. I'd say, how do you like me now? <laughs> Christ doesn't do that. And that shows he's king. Okay. Yeah. When he rises from the dead, he never says, I told you so. No. <laughs> kind of to Thomas a little bit. There's a, there's a nod a little bit. But, but, but it's an invitation this, I, into the kind of faith that I think the Mighty Duck story points to. Okay. Yeah, and, and so and you could understand that if you if you've seen a proper family, yeah, the way it functions, that's exactly the way it functions. So the father obviously has authority, the father has power, but all his power and authority is directed toward making his children powerful and having authority at the proper level. And so because he wants his son to replace him. He wants his son to become, you know, as much as he can. So, so it's not that we refuse or that we, we see authority, we see authority as good. And then we notice that if it's well, if it's well used, then it, it tends to raise everybody up. And there's a difference. And that, that, because we, how do I put this? There's a cleaving of the idea of authority. One is who's been given the authority. I mean, the proper social the social authority to act. And then there's authority in terms of actually having knowledge and character, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this thing that occurs where <clears throat> people are endlessly trying to undermine any form of action of, of legitimate authority. And so we've kind of decided that it's like, I mean, we have a justice system where it's better to let 10 guilty men go free than to convict an innocent man. We've kind of decided with authority, it's it's best to have none at all than to have one single person exercise it illegitimately. And so we see a po all power is being really just the mask for various interests hmm. rather than and, and we've pathologized all of the standards, teleological standards, moral standards, epistemic standards as being merely the product of interests. And when no we do that, ask. we surrender to nihilism and we surrender to cynicism right. and we see yeah. that happening. Yeah. Yeah. And what you guys are witnessing and with your, with your events are men are hung, young people, men and women are hungering to for something. And, and, and you talk about self-development and uh, fixing each other's problems and helping at camaraderie. Um, so what, what's the, emer what's the emergent direction? Where, where, where are they, where are they going to again? I, I, you, I know you already explained it, but you're practicing. Think... You can't have a group. You, people can't have a sense of Shalom and community together unless they actually practice these things. Unless they listen, unless they unless they respect a certain established authority, they expect other arenic authorities in the room that have traditional constituted rules about behavior towards one another. And and in a sense that the act of coming together in person, not online, because online I can I can give Benjamin Boyce the finger and unsubscribe from his channel. Um, but in person, if you're going to enact shalom. You have to practice these virtues, just like with a family. I ask, ask a question. Yeah. Love questions. Jesus has this question where the, the, the authorities bring him a man and say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds by healing him. So now the Pharisees are have to, have to, are the opposite of say, well, 
you're not allowed to do supernatural acts on the Sabbath. It's like you did supernatural acts. Who do you think you're talking to here? Right. There is. And Jordan Peterson is not God. Neither is Jocko Willink. Neither is Andrew Huberman. Neither is, is Andrew Schultz. But these are men who are, are exercising authority and teaching authority within their respective realms. And young men are flocking to it. Particularly, I would say, um, Jordan, Huberman, Jocko Willink, uh, Chris Williamson. There's a, there's a whole sphere of this. And it's, it's people who are within their realm of expertise who stay in their lane, who cross-pollinate with one another and walk in, in their rightful place. And those people are starting to, eat, to get escape velocity from the orbit of nihilism. Because the, 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 the reinstitution, I wouldn't even say reemergence, the reinstitution of legitimate authority is starting to take hold. And part of what legitimizes authority more than anything else, I mean, sure, we've got credentialing institutions and, and all that, but the ability to navigate life in the world is a massive socially legitimating tool. So the question I would want to talk about to John and Paul is, how do we see that going forward? And is there something there around which a properly constituted movement could wrap itself? If I made any sense there at all. <laughs> as long as it's on screens, it's only two-dimensional. Yeah, well, I, that's why, I mean, I, I always say, if you listen to my channel, you'll say I'm always saying, telling people to go to church, you know, and there's a there's a explicit aspect to that, which is, yeah, you should go to church. But there's also just a, a general idea that you should be involved in human in human communities and, and that the online guru sphere, it can help. It's like it can kind of pry you. It can it can start your engine, you could say. But then that has to be that has to be enacted. And so I think that the I think that the family, the community, the church these are the proper places for this to take shape. And it's going to, it is going to happen ground up because I don't see, I don't see anything from the top that's going to change in any time soon. And so mm -hmm. what I think was, will rather happen is that as the world starts to fray and start to become more decomposed and tyrannical, there will be bright lights that will appear and those bright lights will attract others to it. And so the idea of, you know, of having children, being involved in your family, of connecting to a community that you don't completely choose, right? That's not just your, your friends, but that you kind of have to deal with the, with the reality of a community. Uh, uh, if those that will be able to do that successfully will become like beacons, I think. Um, and that, and, and that, like I said, as things kind of break down, they will rise. These things will rise. I don't know how. I don't know which one. I don't know what. But that, I think, is the only way to, to go about it. And that's been you the think? story historically as, right. you know, the Roman Emperor, Empire continues to sort of, especially in the West, as it frayed, it tended to be, you know, if you look at, let's say, a sand dune, a sand dune becomes habitable land because plants start to clump and then they... They begin to cover 
and that that begins to set up a dynamic and so there's family there's churches but these things are going to have to function um and and give people the sense of this is this is the way things should be not perfectly not completely but better than the alternatives and then you will see the reconstitution of of authority of order of roles of tradition it it happens again and again and again in history. Is it possible that, because all of these, that whole sphere, it's all men, it's yeah. all experts in their field, it's all guys who are strong. Is it possible that I, I know it's in 2D, but is it possible that there's some sort of, that it's not merely about, you know, Andrew Huberman's expertise in dopamine or Jordan Peterson understanding how the prefrontal cortex works, but that these men are archetypical fathers and are pointing out like our paint are like a bat signal of dadness being oh, yeah. flashed into the sky of the internet. And that's making men go, Oh, I yeah, that's that. what I want. Like that's you're right. I think you have a point and I think that that's not that it, it has value. It has value because it, it's similar to what you've said is that people, we actually, especially men, women too, by the way, but, but men, especially in this moment, we love seeing greatness. We, we, we rejoice when we see, you know, the, now it's been reduced to things like sports or whatever, where we see someone who does something great and excellent. We love it. And so, but we don't just love it watching physical prowess. We, we, we prowess, we love it in anything. Like we see someone being good at their job. I hate accounting with all my soul, but when I see a good accountant and he like does, he knows what he's doing and he's on it. I'm like, that is amazing. Like I admire them, even though it's something that I have nothing akin to and so i think that that's something that like you said people are hungry for and so when we see these figures appear and that they have a kind of excellence in their life you know uh it's it's attractive so i think it has a positive it can have a positive effect if it's if it's then not just entertainment which is of course the danger is if we don't we don't live through these figures and we 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 just watch them get that kick like we watch a movie and get the kick from watching the hero in the movie and then go back to you know to to, to being overweight <laughs> and and bored so hmm. so it, that's why it has to land like it has to land in in you transforming your life and 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 becoming excellent in something you know yeah and it it has to the reality just like the difference you know a television show forty minutes the world is set right a movie two hours the world is set right. All of us spend all of our lives, and the world is not yet set right, Hebrews 11. Abraham never finally gets to the promised land. Moses doesn't actually cross over. David is an amazing king, but he stumbles and, in a sense, you know, loses his loses a precious child because he couldn't keep his eyes and his hands off his neighbor's wife and not kill a faithful servant in order to cover it up. I mean, this is our story. And so in reality, being a father, being a neighbor, being a churchman, being a citizen of a community is far harder and far longer than the little inspirational dopamine hits we get when we see Peterson or any other YouTube guru land a good point. Heroes. Hmm. 
How? Because I, what is what is part of a question for me is, how do we get the online? See, because the online thing is making it kind of okay to hold those views because you could point to yeah. this guy said it. How do we walk that out from? merely being a thing that we participate in an online community to bring it forth out into the world. Yeah. Well, there, there are ways, I think there are different ways that that's happening. You know, if you, you probably know a little bit about this whole arc thing that Jordan is putting together that I'm also invo involved with. What so is it? It is what does it stand for? It's the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Oh, okay. And so in some ways the name Launching is on Reformation Day. Did he know yeah. that? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's not my choice. So the 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 idea is mostly in some ways to create uh, to create certain locus like events to have places that people can see and they can also find cover in 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 people that have opinions that you know they don't think they're allowed to have. Let's say in terms of of this idea of excellence of of also of seeing you know the this notion of a family as a value. All these ideas that are that are kind of being pressed down upon by certain cultural forces to be able to, to have a stage where that can be represented and people can, can, can aim at and find cover in, you know, I think Jordan Peterson has been great for that, where, you know, he's, he's a reasonable person. He has his fault, but he's a, he's a decent man. He was married with children. And so he says things and then people can say, well, if he said it, I'm a, I, I can aim that way. So of, of kind of building that out, into a kind of movement, I think is something that, you know, I kind I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely throwing my, you know, part of my energy into hopefully to see that, 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 uh, what, so what's we'll the see. content of this? Like, is there uh, work, work, coloring books, workshops? Oh, it's starting as a conference. ARC is going to be a conference in, uh, it's in early November, late October, early November. Uh, and Reformation day. Yeah. Reformation day, I guess. In London, so okay. it's, it's, for now, it's invitational. It's invitation only, and it's mostly to create a kind of elite and a movement of people that that don't want the uh, transhuman, anti-human narratives that have been taking over. Uh, hmm. That are that are kind of pro-human, pro-family, pro. And also, this idea of subsidiarity of of understanding authority and 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 community as existing from the individual all the way to the state, and not just massive you know controlling structures and scattered individuals uh basically proposing a worldview uh and then hopefully growing so that more people can participate but at the outset it's going to be a lot of is a it, lot of invitee kind of politicians and is it and, explicitly and, and, or implicitly religious and can it function without religion i don't think it can function without religion and so i'm going public saying this uh I I I took comfort in, in noticing that most of the people involved in the organizing committee are are dedicated uh, Christians. There are a few exceptions, but it's difficult it's difficult to make it explicitly religious without freaking the entire world out. So so I think it's not going to be explicitly religious. But I do believe that without a transcendent, uh, without a look to, towards something which is transcendent to human reason into human capacity uh i don't think that that it can succeed so why do you think that the world will freak out if it's explicitly religious was what, what why would the world have a problem with uh explicitly religious responsible uh humanities uh cultural well movement? because because 
the entire, let's say, Western narrative since the French Revolution has been ramping up towards the idea that all religious institutions are exactly what Wogel was describing, are exactly only veiled uh, power, veiled, you know, veiled interests, uh, whether it's to get make money or to control others. And so people don't, it's very difficult at this moment in time to to propose that the religious is a constitutive part of what makes us human, that it's necessary. But I think that it's, I think that ultimately, if it's going to succeed, these things are going to have to become more transparent. Like we're going to have to be able to talk about it at least. Um, but yeah, hmm. hopefully we'll get there. There is a thing that occurs where it's the pathologizing of any sort of authority at all. <clears throat> and this sort of like willful um, basking in the glow of, well, there's no authority here. Um, the chief expression of this on in the Christian sphere, and, and Paul might, Paul would know this, I don't know if Jonathan would know, would be Jesus and John Wayne, where it's all of the structures are corrupt. On And how do you know that? Well, I'm a historian. Is the history faculty corrupt? We might want to ask, never mind. <laughs> And so there's this tearing down and, and uh, my friend James Lindsay has talked about how there's a certain way where people want to criticize their way into authority. It's, it's not that they gain authority. It's not that they step into authority. It's just, they mow down everyone else around them. So they're the last one standing and everyone's looking to them. <laughs> and it's like, well, I didn't build a platform for myself. Well, no, you kind of didn't. I mean, there's a woman online, I won't say her name, but she has a book out about how she doesn't have any platforms. She's got a large Twitter following. She does many interviews. She does, you know, and so it's this whole thing of like the criticism, they they hold on to just enough of their own authority to validate their own criticism until the next person come along and criticizes them. And it's this circular firing squad of all these people trying to demonstrate to, that they're not after authority in order so that they can get the sort of status and prestige necessary to be listened to. Well, why do you want to be listened to? What's your goal? What interests do you have? And, and so there's this circular firing squad. And so one of the things that we're going to have to do is build the stealth stories and narratives, which the satirical, caustic, snide, sarcastic, ironic, free, indirect discourse, the discursive bite of that criticism is unable to take down. And, and that comes with the building of real things. You know, as, as much as I'm, you know, when I saw Jonathan's picture on the, on the ARC page, I was, I was very much relieved because I trust Jonathan because I, I know where his heart's at. And I, I, I love, and I, I, I love Jordan. I don't know Jordan as well as I know Jonathan, but I, I do want to push back from the, the, the thinking in this world of screens, and this is going to give make Grim Grizz put this on his channel, this world of set and by set, he means both the Egyptian God and the television set yeah. of that that these are big things because the thing that undermines um exactly what you're talking about here vocal is is a real thing and that's where i think jordan peterson's clean your room starts there but that clean your room is sort of an individual thing you know and i would say if you're if you're in a committed relationship 
marry the person. If you're if you're in a marriage, figure out how to not let it slip into divorce. If you are divorced, figure out how to effectively co-parent. In other words, showing competency and excellency at whatever this level of proper domain is will give a reality that um, that all of these deconstructors really have a difficult time with. Yeah. You know, there's this, I, this morning I saw this, there's this this thing on Twitter now of of there's a trans ballerina and a female ballerina and they're doing exactly the same moves you know side by side and it's best to keep that captionless because if you sort of watch it you learn something and and when when Scott Adams talks about AI his conclusion with AI is that once we have enough AI we will really learn that beneath human beings there's no there there. There's nothing beneath us. But what I would say, the best way to attack the nihilism is to, within your life, in your own proper domain, construct a real thing. And because what happens when you have a real thing is that it is it shines. And when you see when you see a good father or a good mother or a good employee, um, they may become the victims of a tyrannical system. But everybody in the office sort of knows, and that reality is durable and redemptive. I, I, one of the reasons that I ask that is because there is a, that, that cynical narrative, boy, that's had some power, man. Oh, yeah. And it's, it feels kind of stale reasons, at this point, to be honest. It's I'm hoping that it's 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 devolving and cracking into cringe. What I'm hoping is that the the sort of snide, snarky tone which gave those things its bite. Um becomes the kind of thing where it used to be if someone did that to you, you that was a sick burn, you lost. Where a person could just look and say, I appreciate your sarcasm. Do you actually have a point? And the audience kind of goes, yeah, do you have a point? Because at a certain level, um, <clears throat> you can, that when it starts showing up, when that snide, sarcastic, what Mark Lela says in the New Yorker Review of Books, they're long on attitude and short on argument. When that sh first starts showing up, it, and it's tying itself to certain things. You, they might have a point about some stuff like you know, maybe there's, you know, there was racial discrimination. Yeah. And so when they're tying their, their sarcasm to something like that, it's fine. But then that tone, that snide discourse becomes like a signature thing. And that, that cynicism becomes enveloped in the being the very, the heart of that, um, deconstructive enterprise. And as soon as you throw that snide sarcasm back at them, like I remember when Kevin DeYoung did a, a review of Beth Allison Barr's book and he threw in some, some sarcasm and, and oh my stars, how could you? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, you do and Barnes and these other people all go, 
on about how they're, I, I don't want to defer. I'm, I'm engaging in difference. I want to make sure that I'm aware and intervening. So, and all this, and you sit there and be like, has that ever occurred to you that perhaps I will not be deferent to you? Well, I have a PhD in history. That's great. Shall we take a look at the racist history of your university and the racist history of the tenure system? And shall we deconstruct your views on that behalf? And so they don't, either they don't know or don't care that their cynicism is now gotten to the point where, they're all getting attacked too. And eventually hmm. more important than anything else, it's destined to become boring. Yeah. Cause there's only so many times you can say, Oh really? Well, like then, then you have a, an opposite. Before movement. people start going like, all right, you, here we go again. You have a, uh, like, I mean, if my, if, if a surgeon is, is like, you're only curing my cancer because you'd like to gain status. And my response, like, cure me, man. <laughs> give this man some status. Everyone got some status we can give this dude because I'd love to give him some. At a certain point, that argument begins to lose its bite. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it is starting to become cringe. I want it to crack and ossify into cringe so that it, 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 it loses all of its social cachet and becomes low status. And I don't mean in a new sincerity kind of way. I mean, in a way where people are like, we don't really care about interests. We care about truth, goodness, and beauty. Those things exist. And all of your smarmy sarcasm and seeing through everything except for yourself by, by a mirror, pal. See if you see, do, do you see where, where are you seeing this? Like, I, I don't know exactly where, where this is it has sway anymore. It sounds like, old hat stuff um, like what i'm seeing now is emerging I, a a uh like there's a did you see this clip yes. there's this the one of the senator or representatives that got kicked out of the uh, tennessee yeah. courthouse uh he, he comes out with this big afro he did the mlk, and this MLK thing? thing and then you see a video yeah. from three or four years ago of him like being a total straight laced totally not that character at all but he it, him and dylan mulvaney um who who's been a girl for 36 days which is if you go back and watch it it's a total parody but then everybody has to believe in it so i i, I don't see sarcasm and irony reigning anymore I, I see it's like this you know drew barrymore uh like receiving communion from dylan mulvaney in that in that picture it's like this <laughs> this pro protestation to the fakeness or like the the the, the simulacra and, and the, is is it, that's what's going on now. Like I, I think that the the irony stuff doesn't work anymore. The sarcasm stuff doesn't work anymore. It's this cartoonish caricature of reality or cartoonish of, cartoonish empathy. I guess what I'm saying is it's not just the irony and the cynicism and and that sort of I'm talking about in terms of an attack on the traditional, an attack on the real. Okay. Um but I also think there is an extent to which the sober-minded thoughtful voice of a wise man or person saying that's not true no is no longer it is has more gravity and weight to it than the overabundance of empathy and compassion done for the sake of dodging a charge of bigotry. Well, so are you, are you, are you saying that the what's Ma going on Matt with Walsh is the way Matt Walsh is the way 
like the way that he's he's come out with the against the uh, trans he, stuff. Uh, he has a strong spined posture, but I don't say Matt Walsh is the way because I don't think he's always sober in what he's doing. I think it's a bit too performative sometimes and over the top. But I think, I think it's hard to think of a perfect paradigm case. But I think of Jordan Peterson sitting with Kathy Newman yeah. and using minimal necessary force and maintaining his composure in the face of utter nonsense. I think that kind of posture is going to start to gain significant clout, persuasive power, prestige, um, viability, the histrionic empathy or on one hand and the the caustic nihilism on the other are both going to begin to crack and break under the weight of something that's stronger, that's grounded, that is, has rightful authority, speaks from a place of, of what is good, um, that is transcendentally grounded in something that's absolute and therefore walks and is assured of its voice because of its groundedness and is not willing to step outside of its bounds. I think that is going to start to have, I hope that starts to have tremendous persuasive power and weight. I, I, that I make think sense? I, I completely understand and agree with your hope, but a firm and a firm faith in the truth, I think helps us remember that hope is finally grounded in the truth and not necessarily in the popularity of the truth. The popularity of the truth is a blessed sure. thing to see and pursue because it means that the world is, is better than not having it. But the, um, the, uh, again, part of, sorry, I'm a Christian minister. I always go back to this Christian story. The, you do the right thing, obviously never to be popular, but because it is right and because yes. you trust it is the right thing. And you might be wrong. And and then uh, the good person, the good human being is always ready to be corrected because they are often wrong. Yet again, the the best the best response to rampant cynicism and and devolution in the world is um be the right father or the right employee or the right mother. Be faithful to your kids. Um, be faithful to your spouse. And yeah, it is it is tremendously difficult. And it, it is, in fact, cruciform because it costs you everything. And in the end, you might even get crucified for doing the right thing. But you still do it. And in the Christian story, the reward of this and the validation and vindication of this is resurrection. And that's part of why the the cost of secularity has been so heavy because it made it, it left us with the cross, but not with the empty tomb. And if you have a cross without an empty tomb, you can easily devolve into cynicism. I yeah, because my life has been down both sides and I have not always been excellent in in 
or followed the Christian way in terms of how I've conducted myself. We'll put it to put it mildly. Uh, I always say I like Christianity more than other people because some of us have actually done some sins in our time. Everyone sins, but some of us were good at it, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and yeah, I I don't know what I would do without a redemptive arc or the possibility of a redemptive arc. I don't know where I'd go. And part of like, part of why I think that Jordan took off the way that he did is because he said, you can, he gave people like, you can fix your life. It's, it's the nearest smell of a redemptive arc that a lot of people have had in probably a long time. <clears throat> and he modeled it excellently, particularly in those years. And even when he had the benzodiazepine thing, people were like, ah, ha, ha, ha. And I sat and I watched. I said, if he pulls himself out of this and comes stronger, that's proof of concept. Hmm. And lo and behold, his influence is now actually greater. And he's more human. And the scope of what he's doing is now, I would say, shifting the pillars of Western civilization in in real and profound ways. I, through my following, but even prior to that, I worked in politics. Every man under the age of 35, and I started in my late 20s, every man under the age of 35 was watching Jordan Peterson. Almost all of them. Because he modeled that. This is how you do it. And all the wisdom which had been lost had been unspoken in terms of, well, just do whatever you want. Whatever you see right. Whatever you see fit. Whatever you feel like. And that empathetic. And so I hope, part of the hope that I have that this becomes popular is based in the fact that I think that what we are building is grounded ultimately in the transcendentals in truth, goodness, and beauty. And that those provide an objective frame of reference and an objective loci, a linchpin upon which to build a logos. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you can... that's why I hope it can become popular. Because every time someone hitched their wagon to the logos, like, the logos has a very good track record, I have to say. And so that gives me hope. Now, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it's true. The, I, the problem with I the transcendentals kind of... is that you have to see them. You have to experience them. Um, you have to, and that takes discipline. It takes practice. It takes, uh, I think you, you actually do need a, a spiritual practice um, beyond a, a, beyond a religious belief or, or a narrative, a, like a spiritual practice um, uh, by which I mean, a, like, like you talk about Jonathan, uh, working on your attention, really working on your attention. And uh, I think through prayer and, uh, yeah, I think personally through prayer or worship, um, comes to me, the ability to actually perceive beautiful, the beautiful, um, the, the true beautiful and the true, true and the, the, the good, good. Um, but, but before you can even follow those things without them becoming false idols or, or hollow, um, Aspir aspirational terms is you, you do need that um, that perception of them and the only way to get to that perception of them is through a spiritual practice and, and spiritual and that's ultimately what for me in my point of view religion contains the, the spiritual practice religion is the vessel for that spiritual practice and so when when people are looking for religion or, or seeing that religion can help 
me gain meaning. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's not just a bunch of precepts or a bunch of narratives. And those things are all important parts of it, but there's a reality inside of that. And, and, and it's impossible to communicate that reality, uh, through my, through my voice, um, or through my words. Um, I, I can feel it. And if I get close enough, maybe I start to radiate it. I don't know, but you know, that, that constant pursuit of it, I think is really important. The development of that, that internal life is really important. Um, and so I, I just want to say that because, you know, there, there's an inside to religion that, um, it's not just faith, belief, practice, and community. All those things are good, but there's also this other thing. There's this other, this very special thing. There's a holiest of holies inside of that holy spot. That's my spiel. Jonathan, what's your spiel? No, I agree. I totally agree. And I think that, let's say, one of the things, because people, I mean, I'll make my pitch for religion, like basic religion, in the sense that, you know, one of the, one of the answers we hear to what you said is something like, well, I can just do whatever, right? I can just do whatever spiritual practice. I can do yoga, do breathing, do all, you know, have the Sam Harris meditation app or whatever, like, what, you know, whatever, whatever works for you, right? Whatever works for you. So the, and, and I think that one of the reasons why people think that is because it does have an effect. Like it actually, it, it does, it can help you to some extent, but the problem is that reality scales, right? It, it's not just you. It's not just you on the internet. And so what traditional going to church provides is also a link of that all the way through, all the way up. And so, you know, it's like you can worship together and then, you know, you you have a, it's not just you that is working on your attention, but it's your whole family and then your whole community that's working on attention. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why I, I do think that I do think that kind of contemporary, you know, buffet spirituality is, is it's tempting, but it also leads to more fragmentation because then everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And it's, and it's like, whatever, whatever makes sense to me. Um, and, and that obviously leads people kind of becoming their, again, their own little, little worlds that don't connect well to others. So. There's a, so when I, you know, earlier when I was talking about building real things, there's a scaling up of that. And I think Jordan Peterson talks about this in really helpful terms. He's, he's really got a way of, and Jonathan, I think, describes it very well. He's really got a way of sort of building these things from the ground up for people who are, um, by virtue of their formation in our culture, instinctively reactive to what has been categorized as the supernatural. Um, I mean, this has to scale for you and your future self. This has to scale for the people next to you and their future selves. And and so what we look for is, in fact, what, what you find in communal religions is built in already the fact that the practices have to have to sort of align with this equilibrated state. So that and and that's the reason why real religions tend to build real civilizations and and we can, you know, with a degree of with a degree of humility, we can say, well, we can evaluate religions to the degree that they in fact build healthy, robust, 
durable, uh, life-giving civilizations. And, and, and so I think this is, when, when one thinks about, in other words, my, my religious practice should make me a better foundation for a family and a church and a neighborhood and a city and a nation. And if, if multiple people are practicing these things, that health sort of levels up and levels out. And, and this, is, this is really what we're, we're looking for and striving for. Yeah, well, okay, so maybe we don't need a king, but well, see, this is the thing. Like, this is, the, this is just the, the, pr- the problem that keeps on confronting me to confront other people with. We either need a, well, we need king and a god. We need a king. Eventually, yeah. we need somebody at the highest point. We need, we need one king and, and you can't have that without God and you can't have, you can't have a good life without, uh, and it's, it's hard to explain to the post, uh, Christians, uh, the atheists and, and the secularists, because it's, it's like a regression, like going back to believing in things, but I don't see how atheism can scale anything other than just, uh, being a harbinger for progressivism. That's what happened with the new atheist movement, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the liberal, uh, non-religious government that we have now is just foisting up this progress pride flag that looks like exactly like its heart you know it's just like this jumbled anti-aesthetic disproportional mess of a thing and well there's the religion so i i i know i i understand people that are beyond religion, but I don't, I don't know that any sort of civilization can come from a bunch of people that are post-religious, hmm. post-storytelling, post-worship. I think Jonathan, to me, Jonathan is one of the best prophets of this because Jonathan doesn't so much give a prescription besides go to church as demonstrate that what we've seen in the past continues to, dare I use this word, emerge <laughs> repeatedly because the, the Bible is not just sort of in Protestant terms, a playbook, but it is also a description. And I think that's part of the reason why, why Jonathan has been such a prophet in this space, because it's sort of distinct from Jordan and a number of the others who are more um, leaning programmatically Jonathan has basically been pointing out patterns and fractals and descriptions. And I think that's, that's part of his prophetic vocation. Huh. Hate to embarrass you, Jonathan, but that's yeah, what I it's think. a little, little much there. You don't like the word prophet. <laughs> Does that mean something in, in orthodoxy that, that doesn't mean, or just because Cal, the Calvinist. He's not a priest. Okay. Yeah. No, certainly not a priest. That's for sure. Professor. I prophet. think. Joe, Joe Heath talks about this in cooperation social justice about the scalability of various forms and how certain things simply don't scale. And he, he's using it in the conversation of someone talking about socialism as a camping trip where everyone just gets along. And he says that kind of cooperative enterprise doesn't scale. You can't have that kind of trusting relationship with a hundred million people. No. And so he says, one of the problems is of scalability yeah. And because churches can iterate down to that small local congregation all the way up to the Vatican, if you're Catholic, you can have something that scales. I'm Pentecostal. We have the bare minimum required infrastructure as necessary in Canadian law. 
But the way that we operate is authority through relationship. And that's the way I've always operated. So I've worked for everyone from Center for Renewing America. I've worked with Kellen Plucklows at Counterweight, with James Lindsay, with Chris Rufo. M many of the larger sort of counterwoke space people I've, I've worked with um, on various projects, but never in a place where I had authority over them, power. It was always authority through relationship. And I guess that's kind of the model that I think of because that model doesn't scale, but it iterates. And you can iterate that at the level of local communities. And once you get enough of those local communities, that can scale upward. Yeah, That's a scalable thing. And so in, in every conversation I have with every single person, my DMs are full all the time, man. But I, the only authority I exercise, if, if you could even call it that, which I don't know I would, is just the authority of the relationship I have with the person who trusts me on the basis that I've done the reading or I've done the work or I've done whatever else. And so I think that scalability thing is how do you scale relationship in a stable way? And I think the iteration of those congregations across multiple geographic and cultural spaces and then being able to have those congressional entities scale upwards in a way that allows for the creation of larger hierarchies and cooperative entities that exist on what we might think of a federal or national scale, I think is massively important. And I don't know how you get that without a belief structure behind it, AKA a religion. I just don't see how atheism can get you that. Cause how do you have an, an a confessional congregation of atheists? We all well, don't believe this. Yeah, we, we should be fair there. to atheists because atheism is basically a rationalism. And the difficulty is it too easily slips into nihilism hmm. and um, or absolutism. Yeah, but what's their iterative structure? Yeah. What's their iterative scalable structure for rationalism? Well, that's that, that's the basically the modern Enlightenment project, but it should have but it's been, been the parasitic upon Christianity out, which from from what it grew. And that's what's beginning to reveal now. That it was once assuming, it gets beyond yeah. these assumptions, it sort of comes undone. Yeah. Yeah. I have to guys, I have to I have to check out. I already had this little family thing going oh, on no, here, okay. but I have to oh, I have to good. I have to to go. Uh but this is it's been great. It's, it's nice to meet you, Wokul. It was uh we've been kind of I've seen you on Twitter and we've had a few like a little exchanges and everything. So it's good to meet you and Benjamin as usual. Keep doing what you're doing. It was wonderful to meet you, Jonathan. I quite appreciate your work as I have watched you do the various things. My favorite meme is of you because Jordan says, so Christ, in the symbolic sense, and you go like this. The hell more real or is the resurrection more real? And obviously, in some sense, I'm speaking symbolically, but it seems to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's my favorite meme. Jordan and me, yeah, pretty much summed up in one in a kindly though with <laughs> a lot it. of love because I love him to death, you know. So it's like yes, yeah. that's that's what's nice is that you guys engage in this sort of like fun thing. It's very, very, very deep, but it's still playful and fun. Thanks, I appreciate it, Wuko. And you keep fighting, you know. I, 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 
I'm not the I'm not as much like in the political realm, but I I admire people that like any like I said anybody who's that when I see someone that's good and is, is getting in and has got the arguments I I deeply appreciate it. So thanks. And Paul, as usual, it's good to it's always good to see you. Always good to see you, Jonathan. All right, I'm gonna check out. Thank Bye. you, Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye. I think I'll end the recording there. That's cool with you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Wokel and I, when we did our talk, we. <laughs> I think we recorded two hours. I think we talked for four. Yeah. <laughs> local, local game. <laughs> I'm always game. <laughs>